Hey guys, this is Cody Turner. I'm currently at Duke University working as a part of the Duke TIP program, which is an educational program for gifted and talented high school students. And I'm teaching a philosophy in film and literature course this June as a part of the program. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with my brilliant teaching assistant, Leslie Walker. We begin by discussing the ethics of lying, and in particular talk about a paper that Leslie wrote this past semester about Kantian ethics. And then we talk about what's called the paradox of tragedy and conclude by discussing the nature of the self. So without further ado, I present to you, Leslie Walker. Welcome to Tent Talks, a series of intimate conversations with academics, artists, and other fascinating figures with your host, Cody Turner. And we're live. We're here at Duke University, and I have my teaching assistant, Leslie Walker, with me. Leslie, thanks for coming on the podcast. Sure. So we pretty much made it through our first week of Duke TIP. Mm-hmm. I think it was a successful week. The kids are awesome. Definitely. So how about first just say something about your intellectual history and what got you into philosophy? Okay, so I actually always really liked like the enlightenment thinkers when we learned about them in high school i thought that that was like the coolest time period and i used to wish that i could be a part of that time period but i didn't realize that like they were doing philosophy at first so i just kind of admired them and like desperately wanted to be them but didn't think about the fact that that was actually still happening um and so i decided i would do psychology because i also liked studying the mind and things like that Um, And then my sophomore year, which was just this past year, um, I took philosophy of religion um, because my school, you have to take Bible classes and that was one of the options. So I took that class and I had a really great professor um, and I was like hooked from that moment on. So then I added to the next semester and decided I would just double major and keep taking philosophy classes. So that's kind of where it started was with that first philosophy religion class, mm-hmm. um, but it really all stemmed from my obsession with like Montesquieu and Rousseau, <laughs> um, but so also wh- Voltaire. What college do you go to again? Um, Lipscomb University. It's like a small little college in Nashville, Tennessee. And you're a rising junior, correct? Yes. Right. So yeah. let's start off by talking about um, the ethics of lying. So this is something that we've gotten into a conversation about. This is one of the first major philosophy papers that you wrote. You wrote a paper on Kantian ethics. So Immanuel Kant is typically understood as an absolutist with respect to lying. So he thinks that lying is morally impermissible in all circumstances, even in circumstances that most people would think lying is morally permissible in. So the Nazi comes to the door and asks where Anne Frank is. Most people would say, of course, if and Frank's hiding in your attic, you're permitted to lie in that circumstance, but Kant would say that even in that circumstance, you're not permitted to lie. And this kind of falls out of his notion of a categorical imperative. So he has this universalizability test. The idea is that something is morally permissible if and only if it can be universalized. So with respect to any given action that you're pursuing, you ask, what would happen if everyone did that? So cheating on a test, for example. If everyone cheated on a test, then there would be no one to cheat off of, right? And similarly, if everyone lied all the time, then you could trust nobody. So given that lying and cheating aren't universalizable in this way, he thinks that there 
not morally permissible, again, in any circumstance. So he's understood as an absolutist, but according to the paper that you wrote, you, you dug a little deeper on Immanuel Kant, and you think that maybe it's not right to interpret him in this strict of a manner. Right. So there was, <laughs> there were about, there are two facets to what I researched. Um, the first being the historical context that um, Kant's On Charitable Lies was written in. Um, and there was a another famous politician slash philosopher, I think it was Benjamin Constant, um, who was like the opposite political party of Kant at the time. And so they were kind of in this back and forth propaganda-ish sort of thing where they were both trying to ensure that their be political belief like stayed. Um, right. And so Benjamin Constant wrote a paper and in that essay he brought up a German philosopher who um, was such an absolutist that you couldn't even lie to another person and um, who deserved to be lied to. Constant's belief was that um, a Nazi doesn't deserve the truth. Um, and so that was kind of his like dig at Kant. And so it's a theory that Kant felt personally attacked and felt like he had to not only defend himself and his theory, but also his politics. And so he decided to bite the bullet essentially and claim that lying at all was immoral. Um, right. And so that's, a possible reason for why he wrote such a strict absolutist idea that rubbed a lot of people the wrong way, but in a, in a way it was in a defense of his politics. Um, so it doesn't necessarily fall out of his philosophical system, or it's not entailed by that, but it's more of a, a matter of political pragmatics. Yeah, that's the idea. So that was the first part that I um, stumbled upon. Um, and so I started to dig into how people thought that perhaps his actual philosophy in the other ways he'd outlined it didn't align so strictly. Um, and the way that I found most plausible that I researched was centered around his theory of rights. Um, and so essentially um, Kant's theory of right and principle of right noted that um, a person has a right to any action as long as that action doesn't infringe upon another person's rights. Um, and so what the argument was, was that when the Nazi comes to your door, they're using their ability to say whatever, do whatever, to infringe upon your right to have a freedom of speech. Right. Um, um, because if you don't answer, if you don't lie, you're, a person dies. Mm -hmm. um, and so you're kind of trapped in this difficult situation. And so the theory of right allows for a third party to come in and balance um, the, the distribution of freedom. So in that situation, it was argued that lying could be one of the ways that a person could balance that right again um, in order to correct the distribution. Um, so that was part one of that argument was that um, his theory of right allowed for a, a redistribution of freedom, allowing you to lie in order to um, save yourself essentially from having to make a difficult choice. Um, the second part was about 
universe the universal law formula obviously mm-hmm. lying doesn't fit in the universal law formula and that's a problem um, and so um, one person's idea of how to change that was bringing up the other different maxims that didn't fit in the universal law formula so for example um, to you should do um, you should take moderation in all things that was a maxim mm-hmm. um, that they tried to plug in the problem you come across is that you then have to indulge in excess in moderation, and that doesn't make sense. And so that's one of those maxims that does not fit into the universal law formula. Um, so their point was to demonstrate that there are maxims that just don't fit in the universal law formula, and so it's possible that lying is one of those maxims. So that solves, if you go along with it, um, the maxim issue of lying. Um, along with the theory of right, which allows you to redistribute um, this balance of freedom if the situation has been forced upon you, um, lying is allowed in that case. So it, it, it keeps people from being able to lie in all situations, but also deals with this paradox that came up with the Nazi question and the inquiring murderer. Um, so I think that it finds a really good balance of not completely washing away the fact that lying is still wrong um but keeping a a sense of reason where kant was a person who enjoyed reason right um and keeping that reason in the discussion so yeah this was all news to me and one of the reasons that kantian ethics is criticized is because he's an absolutist with respect to all these different ethical issues and a lot of people just view that as too extreme so as you know next term i'm teaching ethics and the little white lie I wish you were my teaching assistant for that, given our mutual interest in the ethics of lying. And going back to something that we discussed last night, so how do you view the ethics of white lies? Like, like I said last night, my perspective on this is that you know, a lot of people view white lies as harmless. A lot of times you'll just kind of engage in a white lie to comfort someone, to protect them. Like, again, my girlfriend comes out and says, do I look good in this dress? And you want to say, even if you think that maybe there's a different dress she looks better in, Um, you're going to say, of course, that she looks good. But my view is that a lot of times white lies can have unforeseen pernicious consequences. Um, If if someone discovers that you told a white lie to them, that can kind of just subtly erode the trust that exists in that relationship. And like I said, if you really care about someone, even though it might be uncomfortable to tell a white lie in the moment, Ultimately, that transient uncomfortability might uh, function to um, help them in the long run, right? So an example from the Sam Harris book, is, which I uh, presented to you last night, is he had a friend and his friend asked him, do you think I could lose 15 or 20 pounds? And Sam's response was, yes, I think you could. And that actually led his friend to... Um, work out and do so. So it actually contributed to his flourishing and that resulted from him just telling him the truth. And like I said, this is related to my emphasis on transparency in the classroom and transparency between you and I as instructor and TA, right? I think that if you're just transparent and brutally honest, it's worth being offended um, in the moment or again being uncomfortable in the moment for the sake of transparency and for the sake of um, bringing things to the forefront I think that's just going to result in better relationships in the long term 
And again, this cuts against the grain with respect to how people usually view the ethics of white lies. They're usually conceptualized as being harmless. Um, do you have any other any other thoughts on the topic there? Yeah, I, I think um, I, in a sense, agree that I would also prefer honesty. However, I think um, for, for myself, there's this distinction that has to be made between like what's right and wrong and what's morally permissible. Um, and right. so in cases like that where, let's say, your girlfriend comes out and basically forces this situation and this question on you and either you offend her or you give her a white lie, mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't say that someone was necessarily... Um, doing something immoral when they attempt to keep her feelings from being hurt. It doesn't necessarily mean that I think they did the right or wrong thing, but I do think that it doesn't harm their moral compass, moral center for choosing to try and be overtly kind. Um, and so while I don't necessarily agree with using white lies frequently, I do have caution in labeling them as wrong. Mm -hmm. um, for various reasons, I know I know many many a girl who would not be able to handle, um, yeah, or and many many a guy who wouldn't be able to handle the the honesty, um, right. and I think that there's a case by case basis that can be kind of assessed, um, and in that sense, I want to make room for an allowance of a person to attempt to help another person out, even if it even if that person wouldn't have been offended by the truth. Um, and like I said, engaging last night, engaging in an ethics of utter honesty doesn't entail going around and just mm -hmm. pointing out people's flaws, right? right. I, th I think there is another distinction to be made between lying and omitting the full truth, mm -hmm. right? So like that doesn't mean you're just go around and point out everything that you observe about a person. Um, but yeah, and I think um, I just want to bring the topic of lying to our political situation right now. I, th I think it's relevant, especially in this um, fake news era that we're currently living in. Um, because it seems like everybody has, and there, there are kids in the background right now, hopefully, <laughs> hopefully the background noise isn't too much. Um, it seems, wow. Hold on, we'll be right back, we'll take a break. And we're back. So like I said, I wanted to just bring this topic of lying to our current political situation. So we're kind of living in this uh, fake news era where everyone kind of has their own personal truth, right? And a lot of times this, these personal truths that people possess are really just synonymous with lying. And I think a lot of this, this political climate that we're living in stems from the fact that there's kind of a fundamental distrust in all things authority and all things government, right? So you have people equating um, reputable news outlets like the New York Times with like a 16-year-old blogger blogging in his basement. They think that since there are no objective standards of journalism, let me just choose whatever uh, journalistic outlet that I want since all of them are crap, right? So because you're kind of painting all of these institutions with the same brush, it's led to this kind of wave of conspiracy thinking, I think, in America. Um, and I think Trump has definitely promulgated this, but I just think that we need to rely, we need to have institutions that we rely on to get information and that we regard as credible because 
I think we inevitably rely on experts, right? Like we're, we're all limited individually. Like I can't go out and run all the scientific experiments by myself. I can't go out and observe what's happening in the world by myself. Like I rely on the news to tell me what's going on. I rely on scientists to tell me what's going on about the universe. So just because of how epistemically limited we are as individuals, we need to rely on certain institutions. And I feel like that has just broken down in our country. And now you have people just, again, with their own personal uh, truths. Um, and I don't know how we get out of this situation. So this is another thing that I want to talk about next term with my kids in the ethics of lying class, just how lying is intermingled with this kind of new wave of conspiracy thinking that we see in America currently. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that matter, but. Um, yeah, I, I think that our generation does struggle with that kind of an issue of, of what media to trust, and sometimes I trust too many, but I think a part of it stems from the fact that our major news outlets, not necessarily the New York Times or the newspapers, I think that they tend to be more factual, but our media news, our TV news, I think tends to exaggerate or mislead for the purpose of in inducing more viewers. Um, I think, like, right. I mean, you always hear like, oh, it's Fox, so they're like the super, super far right, and oh, it's like, what is it, like CNN, that's the far left or whatever, and yeah. they only trust the, like, if you're far right, you only watch Fox, and if you're far left, you only watch CNN, and I think that that's where a lot of the issue comes from, is that we don't trust them to be unbiased, and they aren't unbiased. Um, I think that they do show a lot of bias towards one side or another, and they may do that for the viewers, maybe not the actual individuals running it, but they might do it to get that section of viewers they want. Yeah. Um, but I think that that's a big issue, yeah. and people are trying to fix it by listening to anybody, and that's... right just as much of an issue. I feel like it's like a, a matter of just at least recognizing that you're biased and not pretending that you're just this objective news outlet. But yeah, you're certainly right. A lot of it is just about getting viewers. Like whenever I turn on CNN or Fox nowadays, it's always a breaking news alert, mm -hmm. right? And the breaking news alert might be nothing. It might be like a non-story. I'm like, that's not breaking news, mm -hmm. you know? But it's just like in big flashing letters, breaking news alert. Yep. Um, so yeah, it's definitely not a good time for journalism in America. Um, but I think that's led a lot of people to turn towards things like podcasting and different forms of media and uh, different outlets from which people can get their information. But there just needs to be, again, just some objective criterion of truth, right? Mm -hmm. And that seems to be slipping away in this country. But yeah. let's... Uh, Okay, I won't keep you here for too long because I know it's been a long day. <laughs> Again, thank you for doing this. Um, let's just, I just want to make a lateral move and quickly talk about a couple of things that we talked about this week in the philosophy and film and literature course. So the first is the paradox of tragedy, just because I think that was an interesting concept. So for the viewers, the paradox, or the listeners rather, the paradox of tragedy is, this is the paradox. It's that tragic events in real life we don't find pleasure in right when something horrible happens to one of our loved ones or some mass atrocity or mass shooting transpires we find it devastating but 
When tragic events occur in a fictional or a cinematic context, we do get pleasure in it. When I'm watching a horror film, like I love the fact that people are just getting brutally murdered. <laughs> so this seems to generate this paradox. Why do we find pleasure in tragedy when it occurs in a fictional paradox? And why do we not find pleasure in tragedy when it occurs in real life? Um, so in class, we kind of outlined, or I outlined a couple of different solutions. One is to deny that we actually <clears throat> find pleasure in cinematic tragedy. So Kendall Walton, he's a philosopher, he has this make-believe theory of fiction. So according to him, we don't really find tragic events in fictional contests pleasurable. Uh, we find them quasi-pleasurable. So he has this idea that they, they st stimulate quasi-emotions within us. And these quasi-emotions aren't real emotions. They lack the vivacity and the power and the 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 motivating ground that real emotions possess. So we're kind of engaging in this game of make-believe when we're watching a movie and something like that. So that's one way to deny the paradox, just deny that we actually find pleasure in cinematic context. And the other way is um, <clears throat> to deny that we don't find pleasure in real-life tragedies, Like right? Like human nature, we love violence. Since like the beginning of time, we've been engaging in violence. and. I think the example I gave in class was like when there's a car accident on the side of the road, you're always tempted to look at the car accident. So it's, that involves advocating for a more pessimistic view of human nature, the idea that we actually really do find pleasure in tragedy. But that's another way to resolve the paradox, just denying that first claim um, that we don't find pleasure in tragedy in real life. And then the third way was that Yes, it's true that we don't find pleasure in tragedy in real life, and it's true that we do find pleasure in tragedy in cinema and fictional contexts, but these two claims don't generate a paradox. They're not mutually uh, in contradiction. So I was just wondering what, which, which of the solutions to the paradox you find the most compelling, if any. I think it's hard. So one of the, the students brought up this point that I think aligns better with my view and. I think she was confused at where she fell within the three options, um, but I don't think, I will say, I don't think we get pleasure from tragedy in real life or in cinema. Mm. Um, I think that, similar to the student, um, that the reason we enjoy tragedies, enjoy in a sense, is because they distract us from our own. It, it puts our own tragedies in context. Um, right. When I read a book about characters, for example, I love to read. It helps me escape from whatever reality is. So if reality is hard, I'll read a book about, like the Iliad, where they're fighting in wars and they're, they're stressed about dying every day. It really makes my, like, whether or not I said something stupid in class today, like, seem really small compared to the, the stressors that Achilles had to deal with, for example. And I think right. that that's kind of where these literature, film, media comes into play, is that they show you the context of the world using another person's tragedies. Um, and that could be this person suffers through the death of several people, but in the end has a triumphant victory in some kind of a way. And that shows you, if you suffer through a loss, that you also can have a triumphant victory. And so I think that it's not about whether we gain some kind of twisted pleasure from tragedy in our own lives or in media, but that the media allows us to kind of 
collect ourselves and realize that we are not the only person or persons who have issues um, and that other people, even if they are fictitious people, um, have conquered far greater struggles. Um, so that's kind right. of how I think the tragedy issue yeah. that plays out is that it's most, much more about comparison in a way that helps you feel better about what's happening to you than it is about enjoying someone else's suffering. Yes, you're not like enjoying the suffering, but the fact that they're suffering makes you feel less alone because Mm -hmm. it makes you realize that you're not the only one that's suffering and you recognize that this person might be able to overcome this, so maybe I can overcome this too. So it's kind of like, um, yeah, just the fact that you're not alone. (laughs) It's like a positive misery likes company or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, another topic that, another point that was raised when we were having this discussion, which I think Amy raised, which was very interesting, um, was that um, like real life itself has almost become fictional or cinematic in a sense because of this social media information age climate that we're living in. Like when we see mass atrocities on the news, they're so abstracted from us, they don't even feel real, right? Like it almost feels like a movie. So um, you could say that, yeah, maybe we do find pleasure and tragedy in real life, but that's because we're not perceiving real life as real. We're perceiving it as like fictional in a sense. Like if, if that same atrocity came to our doorstep and we were really forced to engage with it on a personal level, then we wouldn't find... Um, any pleasure or enjoyment in it. I just think that's interesting. I think, because I definitely think that's a real thing. There's just this social media climate that we're living in has just kind of stripped us of our humanity. And this is another thing we were were talking about, just how people, they're so willing to behave a certain way online that they wouldn't behave in real life, right? Like they're, they're treating people that they don't know online in these horrible, despicable ways without realizing that there's another human being on the other end of the line here. And as I pointed out in class, I think there is an analogy to road rage there. Like when you just see someone driving by in a car, you know that you're never going to see that person again for the rest of your life. So you don't even have to engage with them as like a real human being. So you can just give them the finger, or do whatever, and flip them off. Um, so it's definitely a project of reestablishing our common humanity in a digital context. And I don't know how we're going to achieve that. <laughs> yeah, it's going um, to be different. I think we're really, I would use the words desensitized mm. to a lot of what we see. Um, like, like I know for, for my parents, for example, when they see a shooting, it's a lot more shocking to them. It's a lot more disgusting. But like... When I see a shooting, I've known about school shootings and they've been frequent since I was in middle school. So when I hear about another shooting, it's just like, oh, it's happened again. Right. Um, and so there's this kind of desensitization for me that like, yeah, I know it's real. I know it's terrible, but it's common for me now. Uh, it happens. Um, and so it, there's not as much shock or disgust and that's really sad. Um, but I think that that's what's happening to a lot of people around our age where they've just grown up and that's what like, Columbine was happening and, and all of this had already happened and Sandy Creek happened and like that's yeah. just what it was. I know Sandy Creek was more shocking to me because it was an elementary or school. Sandy Hook. San- Sandy Hook, mm-hmm. thank you. Sandy Hook was I actually was lived more like shocking. 20 minutes from Sandy Hook. Yeah, Sandy Hook was the shooting that I think shocked me the most because it was yeah. elementary kids versus 
high schoolers and that right. doesn't make sense to a lot of I think adults like for them it's like they're all kids but like for me I was used to seeing people my age get shot but not little kids and so for that that was really harder yeah. to acknowledge um, and I think that that just kind of highlights how used to high school shootings I've become um, compared to when you add a new aspect in and how that changed um, so I think it's I think it's something that we'll have to adapt to as a country, not necessarily something we will surpass. Mm. Um, I but, remember when yeah. Sandy Hook was happening, I was driving home from a basketball tournament and like we passed by the Sandy Hook exit on the way back and there was just so many ambulances like going by. And at that point, we didn't even know what was going on. But I remember that I was just astounded at the time. But yeah, I think that's a good point. Like you have this new generation of people that are growing up in this social media climate and they don't know any difference. So they, they're not experiencing the same level of shock. I feel, feel like people aren't grappling with that enough. The fact that like no generation of human beings has ever grown up in this uh, information age because it's new. And like it's got to affect the way that kids grow up. Because like this is, we have, this is new territory for humanity. And... I don't know. I think it's definitely just going to it's definitely going to alter our species in a way that people aren't recognizing. Like I know you have like anthropologists saying like this is the beginning of a new like epoch, mm-hmm. you know, and, like we're living right at the beginning of it. Um I feel like people don't realize that enough. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's a frequent discussion amongst me and my friends of how uh, and I think the rising levels of anxiety play into this the but also the rising level of human rights um, and the realization that we should be fighting for people who have less than us kind of a thing. Um, I think there are many good things that come from the information age in that sense, mm-hmm. but because we Absolutely. can see across the world that a group of people are suffering in a way we never could before. Right. Um, but it also comes with all this backlash um, that I think any generation comes with, any new technology comes with, but something that is definitely unprecedented in that we can't necessarily predict what it will do to us. So it'll be interesting to see it play out. Um, I feel like that's one of the paradoxes with the information age. Like in one sense, it makes us so much more connected, as you just said, because we can see what other people are doing from different cultures across the world. But in another sense, it's made us so much more isolated and atomized. You have people living in these different political echo chambers and, it's, it's just weird. I feel like techno- that's a persistent paradox in many different forms of technology. The act of, it's like unifying us in one sense, but making us more polarized in another. Um, so it's a weird situation. Definitely. Okay. The last uh, question that I wanted to throw at you was the one that we talked today about okay. today, this connection between um, the self and narration. So we talked about... Um, And by narration, I mean kind of like just the narrative structure of our lives. You know, like we each have this kind of like inner narrative playing in our heads that we've used to kind of define our lives. And the question that I posed to the students today was, um, what's the relationship between this kind of inner narrative and the existence of yourself? And one idea was that narration kind of necessarily falsifies the self because by applying like a story to your life that story is necessarily going to be in the form of language and this is something that i talk about a lot language necessarily generalizes 
and does an injustice to the particularity of life. Because by, by applying language to something in reality, you're putting that component of reality into a concept, right? You're conceptualizing it. And by putting it into a concept, you necessarily generalize it and abstract away from it. So you might think the same thing about narration applied to the self. You're impl- imposing this like story to yourself. And by doing so, you're fundamentally kind of like doing an injustice to yourself. Um, so that was like one end of the spectrum. And then the other end of the spectrum was that um, no, narration doesn't falsify the self, but quite to the contrary, it's a necessary condition for the existence of the self. Like lower animals, they don't possess selves in the way that we do because they don't have the capacity to tell a story about themselves. Like our self is intrinsically bound up with the story that we tell about ourselves. Um, Right. So then we so we talked about that relationship, but then that led to the discussion between biography and autobiography. Right. So these are two different forms of literature, and the question that I posed to the students was, which form of literature, biography or autobiography, better captures the essence of a person? Right. On one end, you might say that autobiography obviously does, because of course I'm more equipped to tell a story about my life than someone else because I'm me, right? I have first-person access to my life and to my thoughts and to my desires in a way that other people don't. But at the same time, human beings are biased. So I can rewrite memories and I can paint a really good picture of myself and make myself out to be better than I actually am. So maybe someone else is in a better position to offer like an objective characterization of my life. Um, right. So do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, um, to begin with the narration part, um, I have a, I think, a complicated <laughs> belief. Mm. I, I do agree that if I were to try and write down the story of my life, it would do an injustice to the actuality of what my life is. However, I don't think that that lessens the narration itself. I think that we can never completely capture a moment in words, but we can try, and I think that the effort can get close sometimes if you're a particularly amazing writer. Um, but it's just like I imagine, um, the, let's say the best writer in the world attempts to describe the perfect sunset. Everyone will always imagine that sunset a little bit differently, even if this is the best writer in the world. But what they can give you is the essence of that sunset. So they can give you this kind of like the soul of the moment. I think maybe they can't capture every aspect, but they can give you an aspect that speaks to you. And so I think that narration is one of the closest art forms that can capture a person Mm. um, or that can capture an idea. Um, I think literature has the ability to catch things in a way that many art forms don't. Um, So I think and no, a narration cannot perfectly capture who I am, yeah. but that it can give you the soul of whatever it is I'm trying to say. It can get it to you, um, especially brilliant writing. Right. Um, it's like the best tool that we have to capture the soul. Yes, in some I, sense. I think, and I guess, I guess I do think that it's a little bit necessary. Um, I think that I, I put a big em- emphasis um, in my life of telling one story. Um, I think that. The best way to get to know another person to understand an issue is to ask the people involved for their story. Right. So, 
I clearly place a very heavy emphasis on the importance of personal stories. Um, and so to, to deny narration has any influence would certainly deny um, that belief of mine. And so, no, I definitely think narration is vital um, to understanding one another. Maybe not yourself. You don't have to have a story about yourself to understand who you are. But hmm. to understand another person, narration is necessary. Um, so at the end of your life, after you become a professor of philosophy or psychology and, and inspire billions of people <laughs> with your ideas, are you going to be, would you rather write your own biography or would you rather have someone else write your biography? So personally, I wouldn't want to write about myself. Um, I think I would just find it boring. <laughs> um, no matter how quote-unquote amazing I might have been, I think I would just find it boring and annoying to try and write about myself. If someone wanted to write a biography about me, they could go for it, but I, I wouldn't be interested in the task. That said, I think that even an autobiography that has been falsified by the person writing it still shows you exactly who that person is because a person willing to omit certain truths of their life, that also speaks to their character. So in a sense, I think that an hmm. autobiography can really get at <laughs> the internal structure of a person's mind, how they really feel about themselves. However, I think that if you wanted something factual, biography might be the best way to go if you had someone actually dedicated to the truth. There are definitely biographies who are that are sensationalized in order to sell. Right. But there are also biographies that they just want to be honest in what this person has done um, or what this person was like. Um, and so I think that an autobiography is perfect if you want to understand the psychology of, a, of another person. But if you want to understand objectively the points of their life, a biography would be superior. So they both have their, their pros. Yeah, um, I like that. That's a good point that you made, that what you don't say if you're writing an autobiography says something about who you are, like what you omit says mm -hmm. something too. Like that yeah. itself is an action. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Then yeah. One other thing, like we talked about Sartre and Sartre thinks that the self necessarily transcends any narrative that you might tell about yourself. Right. So like, again, the example, I know that I've already given this example like two times, but for the sake of the viewers, these, the narrative of David Copperfield does not include David's act of writing that narrative as an episode within it. And if it did, his act of writing about that act of writing wouldn't be included within it. So Sartre has this idea that you can never really escape yourself or transcend yourself, right? Like I was saying earlier, even if I adopt a second order awareness, I became aware of my own awareness, um, nothing's aware of that awareness. So like you can only look over your shoulder to a certain extent, and you can never really occupy this truly objective view of yourself. Um, and because you can never escape yourself, any narration that you try to apply to yourself is necessarily going to be incomplete. Um, yeah, I, I think that's so that like that thought cuts against the idea that autobiography is the best um, form. And then Sartre's other idea was that death could be uh, an obstacle to autobiography as well because you're not going to be around to write about your death, but someone else might be around to write about your death. They could attend the funeral. They can observe how your death affects your loved ones and all that. So um, you can write as detailed a story about your life as you want, but the final episode of your life, namely your death, you will 
not be around to articulate. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that in a way is I agree. Um, I do think that the self transcends narration. Um, however, I think that it, it, were I to write something about myself, I would only be able to capture who I have been in that moment and from the past. So I don't like just like when his in history, I can only analyze history to up to this moment. History stops right where I am, like right. and that's it. And I think that that's similar. However, I think that that is a part of the beauty, I guess, of literature is that you get this still image in a sense, but it also has this layer and layer of history back behind it. Mm. Um, you can write 10 years later and you could have a whole different person. Um, but yet, and yet those people are still the same. I think that that's actually rather accurate to life in a, in, in a way because um, I couldn't even explain myself in its totality because I haven't lived myself in its totality. Right. Um, and so I think that it's still incredibly accurate um, because I mean, I, you don't read literature to, I guess you kind of can, but if I was to write a biography about myself, you don't want the biography of who I might be. You want the biography of biography of who I am and who I am is a current state. Um, right. And so a biography would be very accurate to who I am because it's exactly who I am at the current state that I wrote it. Mm. Um, it may not be who I will be, but that's something else in the first place. Um, and so when he talks about death being an obstacle to autobiography, I think, again, that autobiography is not perfect if you want a step-by-step -step play of what I do every single moment of every day. But it is a great um, viewing of who I am. Um, and even if I were to falsify something, it's a great view of who I think I am even. And that provides a lot of information that a biography can't because a biography can give you the objective facts, but it can't really dig into my head the way an autobiography can. Um, and so I think that in a way, uh, what, how was it, Sandra, um, kind of misses a point yeah. um, to what is happening um, in in the creation of a biography or in, in the attempt to capture what, who a person is. Yeah, was there a consensus among the students on this topic? I think it was kind of um, a mixed bag. It I was guess. a it was a mixed bag. I think I think a lot of them were somewhere in the middle. They didn't agree with every point, but they did think maybe death was something they couldn't write about. I mean, yeah, they were somewhere in between <laughs> on a little spectrum. But at the, yeah, at the end of the day, I think. The self is an illusion, like we talked about with respect to Buddhism. Um, again, you know, pe people think that there is this thinker that's having these thoughts, but at the end of the day, it's really just thoughts. And once you realize that, you can learn to foster healthier patterns of thoughts and actually change your life. Um, for me, that's been a really important insight, just talking about the self, because like I was saying, and I'm kind of going off on a tangent now, sorry. Um, but we're inevitably prisoners of the moment. And if you, had a, if you have a bad thought and you identify with it, you can think that that's representative of some like permanent fact about yourself. And I was trapped in that for a long time. I would just kind of be the prisoner to the next thought that comes barreling into consciousness. And I would think like, oh, that's me. But then I'm like, no, that is not me because there is no like immutable self or thinker of thoughts. It's just thoughts. And I'm just identifying myself with those thoughts. So...
you know, again, like any thought that you have, like if, if you're, that could inspire you to feel bad in the moment. And since we're inevitably prisoners of the moment, you feel like you've always feel you've always felt bad, and you'll always feel bad. And this is something that I said to the students, but I really believe this. We're we're always prisoners of the moment. And if I'm conversely, if I'm feeling happy, I'll operate under the illusion that I've always been happy, and I always will be happy. Transient feelings feel permanent in the moment that you're feeling them. Um, so breaking through this illusion of the self for me has been really revolutionary because it's made me realize that I can really change who I am by just thinking different thoughts on a more daily basis, right? Like th th uh, thinking more positive thoughts in particular on a more daily basis. Um, and kind of like actively rewriting the narrative of my life because there is no established narrative of who I am. Like I decide what the narrative is because there is no self, right? So. I can rewrite the narrative right now with my thoughts um, and just change the narrative. And once I do that, my actions are going to reflect that narrative more. So it goes back to this kind of fundamental belief that I have about how your perspective on the world largely determines how the world is for you. And this is something that we're going to talk about a lot next week when we talk about existentialism and absurdism, because this is kind of a, what Sartre means when he talks about human beings being condemned to be free but um, we'll get into that but yeah it's just I think it's relevant to this issue of narration and it came up in discussion earlier and like I said it's certainly been a revolutionary insight for me and it's helped me with uh, kind of getting out of emotional funks because the once the emotions follow the thoughts once you think a different thought um, the emo whatever bad emotion that you had that was tied to a bad thought will go away you know so um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that matter or on Buddhism, um, or you just think I'm crazy by saying that the self is an illusion. But. I think I came to a similar conclusion in the opposite route of um, I find the individual self very important, but I do believe that the self can change. Um, so I think I, I definitely believe that thoughts and the thoughts you allow yourself to have and the feelings you allow yourself to sit in affect the world around you, affect who you are, affect who you think that you are. Right. Um, and so for me growing up, it was this sense of if I want to be something else, I have to make myself something else. Mm -hmm. um, but in that sense, there was something that I was altering. And so I do think there's a base personality I have and in that base, whatever it is, I have this belief that I can change um, those things around me. Um, but I think that a part of that first came from understanding that myself is changeable, that there's something changeable, moldable for me to, to use. Right. Um, and that the parts that I do like about myself, I can keep while also changing the parts of me that I found were difficult or unpleasant. Um, negative thoughts, for example, um, mm -hmm. I realized, well, that's something I can change about myself. But the other parts of me that I do like are things I can keep. And so, um, I think that I kind of yeah. You don't have to throw the baby that. out with the bathwater. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that I kind of came to that by really contemplating what I, who I thought I was, um, and seeing that person not only as like who that person was then, but who they could be right. um, over the course of a long time. Realizing that I didn't have to stay one self, but that myself could change. So, I think that that's kind of how I came to a similar conclusion of 
believing in moldability, um, but it was definitely centered around this idea that there was something continuous mm-hmm. that I would be adapting over time. Right. But it, I, I find it interesting and kind of cool that you did it by eliminating the idea that there is a specific self. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we agree. <laughs> yeah, essentially, we agree. <laughs> All right. Um, I've kept you long enough. Uh, is there any, unless is there something else that you want to throw out? We can no, we can do good. another one of these and towards the end of the program or something like mm-hmm. that. Um, again, thank you for coming on. I appreciate it. I, um, you taking the time to do this. Um, and yeah, perhaps we'll do another one in a week or so. But yeah. Uh, Thanks again. I think the course is going great, and I think that's largely due to your contributions. <laughs> Specifically, you putting me on to all these new learning activities for oh, students. Yeah. <laughs> um, Leslie, yeah, Leslie really introduced me to these uh, different kind of activities you can do in the classroom to stimulate group discussions, and I think a lot of them have been really effective. Um, so thanks for putting that in my radar. Yeah, internet's great. <laughs> <laughs> and tomorrow they have their first exam. Right, so that'll be fun. <laughs> All right, thanks, Leslie. Yeah.